Luke chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 27 and go through the end of the chapter, verse 39. That's Luke 5, 27 through 39. And if you would stand with me, please, as a way to honor the reading of God's word. I'll read these 13 verses and you follow along. Thank you. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. And yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to show himself to us today. Father, we thank you for this passage. We pray that you would teach us this morning, that we would be uh, learners, followers, disciples. Lord, for those this morning who don't know you, who aren't following you, um, Lord, may they be convicted by this message. May you work by your Holy Spirit, even now in their hearts, to stir them up to repent and believe the gospel. Lord, for those of us who have believed this amazing gospel, that we have recognized that we are sinners, will remind us this morning of our responsibilities, our privilege to reach out to those who don't yet know you. Lord, that we would not become inward focused, but that we would look out to those who are lost and dying, and that we would go out and get them as you model for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Do you like sausage? Anybody have sausage this morning? Oh, I didn't either, but I should have for this message. I love sausage. It's my favorite food, especially breakfast sausage. I'm a man of simple tastes. But I've always loved sausage. Um, What in the world could that possibly have to do with our message from the Gospel of Luke today? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you for asking. I will answer. Ulrich Zwingli was a Roman Catholic priest in the early 16th century serving in Zurich, in Switzerland. And several years into his ministry, Zwingli realized he had read many commentaries on Scripture in his education, but not the Scriptures themselves. He had not read the Bible. He was a Roman Catholic priest who had not read the Bible. So, in 1516, he picked up the new uh, Greek New Testament. It had just been released. Um, And he began to read that book, and everything changed. Zwingli was overcome by the glory of God's word in the newly printed Greek New Testament. So much so, he copied out for himself almost all of Paul's letters in his own handwriting and eventually memorized almost the entire Greek New Testament. He couldn't get enough, so he bought more books on biblical studies and theology and taught himself Hebrew so he could read the Old Testament. And so his his theology began to evolve and began to change and began to see things in a new light. His views on the authority of the Pope began to change. So did his views on preaching. He disregarded Catholic liturgy and began, get this, preaching straight through books of the Bible. That, That was not done. And so he began to go through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse. He attacked the Mass as a continual re-sacrifice of Christ, and instead taught a simple memorial of Jesus' death by sharing bread and wine with a common table at the head of the church, not an altar. For the first time in centuries, the church shared in both the bread and the wine. For many centuries, only the priesthood would take part in the wine, and only the 
laity, the common people, would only have the bread. He denied the existence of purgatory. He argued against praying to the saints. He preached salvation by faith apart from any works. And the people of Zurich became convinced that this was the true gospel. And they began to see many Roman Catholic Church traditions for what they truly were, just traditions of men. So on the first day of Lent, in 1522, 12 friends gathered for a meal. Now during Lent, tradition said at the time that meat was not to be eaten for those 40 days. Uh, A lot of times, some of you may have been involved in um, something during Lent. Sometimes it's no meat on Fridays. Um, For the most part back then, the tradition was no meat during Lent. These friends, though, um, gathered for a good diet of biblical preaching from Hare Zwingli, and they began to think for themselves from what the scriptures taught. They reasoned that many of the traditions had obscured God's good and right gifts to his children, and that they were enslaving people rather than liberating them. So in order to proclaim their freedom from man's traditions, they got together and modeled what good Americans would do centuries later, They had a barbecue, and they ate sausages. (laughs) Like any group of people, including us, including us, including us, traditions can build up that actually obscure truth and right practice. Notice that word, obscure. In today's passage, we'll see what happens (laughs) when Jesus himself begins to undo tradition for truth. And offers himself as well. So let's look at Luke 5. And of course, the only way sausage fits into a sermon is we're talking about Gentiles. Because Jews would not, good Jews would not be eating sausages. So I had to sneak that into the intro before we talk about Jewish people here in Luke 5. But if you'll look with me uh, at Luke chapter 5. We're starting in verse 27 of what we already read. Those first two verses are the first point in your notes. Jesus loves the seemingly unlovable. Jesus loves the seemingly unlovable. Jesus is walking around. We know from Mark and Matthew that this happens near the town of Capernaum, which we have already talked about and we've already seen in the previous passages. But um, in this town, um, it was uh, right on the border of some uh, different regions of not only Uh, the people of Israel, but also the Gentiles nearby. And so it was right on a trade route. Uh, Because it was on the trade route, it made it a perfect place to set up a toll or a tax booth. Um, I did some reading on this, and there's not 100% certainty on exactly how the taxes worked in that area at that time, but we do have vast amounts of data on how the Roman Empire taxed various peoples um, in that region. Um, just for fun, it probably ended up being about a 20 to 30% tax on their income um, at the time. Um, and Capernaum was the last town on the highway that left Herod Antipas' territory for his brother Philip's territory, and then also left to a large city called Damascus. So, um, perfect location. Um, it's unclear exactly what was being charged. Was it just a toll for using the road? Um, like, in many states, there are toll roads, right? You pay to use that road to your advantage um, and for upkeep. Or maybe it's something more like a sales tax on goods, uh, being that Capernaum was a, um, not a metropolis, but it was a larger town in the area and had a lot to do with the, the trade of fish, fishermen. This is a, a map of uh, where Capernaum is on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. And you can see, actually, this road that runs through Nazareth, and comes down towards the Sea of Galilee and runs right through Capernaum before it heads north um, up to Damascus. So it is the last town they would have passed on the main road to set this up. And so we meet a guy named Levi who's a tax collector or a toll collector. And he's got his booth set up right there on the road, prime real estate, so that he can exact taxes. Notice in verse 27... Jesus, it says, saw a tax collector named Levi. Saw is a pretty soft word in the original language. It it actually has the connotation that Jesus looked intently at him. Um, It means to have an intent look at something, to take something in with one's eyes, with the implication that one is especially impressed. 
Um, and so the, the, the picture is not that Jesus just happened to, oh, stumble by, and there's a tax collector. Um, the implication is that Jesus is walking, it's almost as he's walking to Levi, to the man in the tax booth, and he looks at him. Um, it's a non-creepy gaze, <laughs> okay? He, he, he doesn't just see him. He intently looks at him. Levi's there just doing his job. Just doing his job. But what we have to understand is that tax collectors were some of the least well thought of Jewish people um, in Israel, if not the worst. Um, In the eyes of the Jewish people, the tax collector had sold out his own people so that he could buy a tax franchise from the Romans and then be in charge of exacting taxes from a town or a region. Now, he had to buy that franchise, and so he had to pay back uh, the, the local Roman governor. So generally, what he had to do is he had to, he had to charge the Roman tax, but then he needed to add a surcharge to cover his fees, right? Um, and so, because of the way things worked at the time, there were, you, know, you couldn't go check on the website if there was an update to things. Uh, wow, the, the charge went up. I didn't know that. Well, the charge went up. Okay, well, you don't have any recourse there. Um, you can't stop and, you know, call a friend and see if that was really the case. And so often, often the tax collectors would overcharge and overcharge and overcharge to pad their own accounts. Now there was even probably, as we're going to see later on in the book of Luke, when we meet a short man named Zacchaeus, um, that there was probably like a head tax collector who had a bunch of un- guys under him as well. So there was a structure here. And so the Jews hated tax collectors. Um, According to one of the commentators, they were known as the ultimate sinners. One ancient writer put them right up there with pimps and prostitutes. In his list, that is who he lists as the worst dregs of society. Tax collectors are right there in them. Now, we've already met tax collectors in the book of Luke, so just turn a few pages back to chapter 3 really quick, and notice that in John the Baptist's ministry, tax collectors have already shown up. In verse 12 of chapter 3, tax collectors came to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. They had heard the message and they wanted to be baptized. This was taking a huge step of faith. And John was accusing the Jewish people of not living according to the law. They were not living in a way that that, um, showed their love for God. And so the tax collectors want to change. Teacher, what shall we do? Verse 13, John said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Okay, do your job. Don't stop being a tax collector. You don't have to quit. It's not necessary that you quit to follow God. What is necessary is that you don't cheat people. Be honest. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. So at least some of the tax collectors had heard John's message. Perhaps they were beginning to hear Jesus' message. Whatever the case, there's a tax collector who we find here is named Levi. Now in the other Gospels, he's called Matthew, including in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so there's been some debate over the years, but it is really, um, it's really clear that people can have multiple names. In fact, I had this conversation with my girls um, this week. We were talking about God, and um, Emma said something about um, how could Jesus be Jesus and God be God, and they, they have different names. And, how, and we talked about names, and I said, well, one person can have different names, right? I said, what's my name? And Allison and I were both there, and one of them said Daddy, and one of them said Andrew. And I was like, see? <laughs> what do other people call Daddy happy what other some people call him pastor say look i have lots of names people in the bible times had names we already know from our passages in the in the past few weeks simon peter okay um multiple names we see that throughout the scripture it is not a big deal to go oh no it's levi the same guy as matthew in the other gospels ah discrepancy um not not what we're not what we're seeing here by the way levi is a fantastic jewish name um as the third born of jacob um, and his, uh, his line became the Levites, who helped the priests in the tabernacle and later in the temple. It's a, it's a great Jewish name. It is one of those Jewish names you want because it's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So here he is sitting at his booth. I love the simplicity of the story. Jesus looks at him, says, follow me. And then they have a debate. Oh, wait, no, that's not in there. The next three words, verse 28, and leaving everything. You know, we saw that two Sundays ago when Peter 
and Andrew and James and John left their fishing business. They left everything to follow Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. They dropped their nets and left to follow Jesus. Now, leaving everything does not necessarily mean they immediately wrote off everything that they ever had and only had the clothes on their back. We know that later in the Gospels, Peter's boat is still available to be used for the disciples and for Jesus. We note that in the Gospel of John, they go back to fishing, so they still have um, their business or they still have access to it. Um, It does not necessarily mean that Levi sold everything because in the next part of the passage, we're going to see he has a nice house and has a bunch of people over as house guests. What it does mean is that his way of life was completely shattered completely, can you imagine? Just, I mean, just imagine your job. Imagine your job. It's the middle of the day. Some guy walks by and says, hey, come follow me. And you're like, peace out, boss. <laughs> uh, come back here. Clock out, right? You, you can't do that. You're probably not going to be welcomed back the next day, by the way. Oh, I followed Jesus for the rest of the day. It was great. You know, he taught us the Bible and I'm ready to work. And the boss says, no, you're not because you don't have a job anymore. Um, that's just kind of like the very least of what may have happened here, but Levi drops his business. He drops his way of life and he gets up and he leaves everything and he follows Jesus. This is immediate and total obedience. This is what we teach at our house. (laughs) When do we obey? Right away. It's good that it rhymes, helpful that it rhymes. Okay, right away. Immediate obedience. This is what Levi shows here. In fact, This is not just for Levi or just for the 12. This is for all of Jesus' disciples. Jesus is going to expand on this in Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 14. We're going to see, he's going to say things like, hate your wife, hate your kids, follow me. Excuse me, what? Jesus? And if you've never read that before and now you're really intrigued, you can go read it in Luke 9 and Luke 14. Jesus is going to expand on that. The call to follow Jesus is a call to leave everything. Now, This is helpful to note because Jesus is calling a despicable sinner. Now, this guy was not um, unclean like the leper that we saw. He's not paralyzed like the paralytic. He's not demon-possessed as someone that we've seen. But he is despised by society. He's probably pretty well-to-do. But he is despised by society. Everything in the Jewish mindset said, don't look at that guy. Don't associate with that guy. Don't let your kids play with his kids. Stay away from that guy. And Jesus walks up to that guy, looks at him and says, I want you on my team. I want you on my team. Now, this is really good news for us. Really good news for sinners like you. Yes, you and me. Sinners like us. This is great news because we have been invited to follow Jesus. Us, weans, we have been called to follow Jesus as well. Now, what happens next is a fantastic opportunity to see what obedience looks like. So point number two in your notes is for verses 29 through 32. And it says, Jesus came to heal the sick and sinners who acknowledge their condition. Jesus came to heal the sick and sinners who acknowledge their condition. That is really, really important to have all of that together. Now we see in verse 29 that Levi then immediately has a great feast. He calls all his buddies, who probably, if they were his buddies, were not buddies of the religious establishment of the good guys. Okay? Um, And they have a great feast in the house. There was a large company of tax collectors, and notice others. There's tax collectors, and there's others. At this table, they're reclining at table. That means that they are not seated around a table like most of us would be, but they probably had a lower table or ate off of a rug or a blanket on the ground, and they reclined around it. Um, they reclined around it together, and that was the mode of eating. I think it's a fantastic idea to lay down while you're eating. It sounds great. Maybe we should do that. They're all, they're all laying around eating, they're, but they're not just eating, right? They're not just like, get this food done, let's get to the next thing. In the Middle East, even today, but especially back then, to have table fellowship was an extremely important and meaningful thing. To sit around the table with someone, to show hospitality, is to say, we're on the same level, I accept you, 
you accept me, this is a big cultural event. This is a societal event to say, you can come to my table. So Jesus is at the table with this great sinner and his tax collector buddies. And they're all reclining at table. And they are, I imagine, enjoying their time because it's a great feast. And they are around the table together. Now, verse 30 says, The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. Um, so where were these guys? They certainly weren't at the party. Tax co- if, even if they were invited, which is probably not the case, there's no way that the Pharisees and their scribes would be seen with this rabble. They would not be, be together. They would not share table fellowship, that's for sure, with these kinds of people. So what are they doing? I don't know, but I can speculate that these religious people are snooping and spying. Okay, the homes were built a little bit differently. Um, it would, probably would have been fairly simple, fairly easy. You've seen some pictures the last few weeks of Capernaum to kind of hang around and hear what's going on. Like they're laughing in there. I'm not talking about spiritual things. Um, whatever the case is, these Pharisees and the scribes have a big problem with Jesus doing this. And so because they're righteous and they're the good guys and they're manly, they take it to his disciples. Grumble at his disciples, verse 30, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now notice Luke said the people at the party were tax collectors and others. The Pharisees say there's tax collectors and sinners. A very broad category that basically means everybody I don't like. Now, we live in an age where this is super easy, and we see this all the time on social media. You are a liberal. You are a conservative. You are a gun owner. You are a blah, blah, blah. We just throw these words around and instantly say, you're other than me. By the way, our words are powerful, aren't they? Be careful with your words. They say, not are there tax collectors and others. No, there's tax collectors and sinners in there. I can't believe you disciples of Jesus are eating and drinking with them. Now look at verse 31. Verse 30 says that the scribes and Pharisees are talking to the disciples. Who speaks in verse 31? Jesus does. Now, again, the text doesn't say this. I'm speculating a little bit. But I love that Jesus is the one that answers. I don't know if it means the disciples were like, uh, which, knowing the disciples, they may have been. But even if they weren't, I love it because Jesus comes and defends his boys. Jesus comes and he says, oh, hey, hold on a second, I'll answer that. We don't know if this, did Jesus come out of the house? Was it after the dinner? Was it somewhere else nearby? Whatever the case is, Jesus doesn't let these religious hypocrites tear into his boys, tear into his guys. Turn to his disciples. Jesus comes and defends his guys. He says, oh, I'll answer this. Um, hey, guys, those who are well have no need of a physician, right? But those who are sick, I can just see the Pharisees going, yes, that's true. We know from ancient texts that this was kind of an, like a, a known t- kind of proverb so that Jesus wasn't like making something up. He was actually like taking something that existed and using it for his own purposes, um, Jesus says that those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. And then he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, th- there's a, a few things I want to point out here. This is the first time the word disciples shows up in the book of Luke. And um, if you've grown up in the church, um, man, you just disciples, you know, Peter and those guys and those guys, those doofuses, right? You kind of like just have this, this thing for disciples, um, it may be the equivalent of apostles in your mind. Um, but disciples throughout the Gospels is used of the 12, but it is also used of any of those following Jesus. In fact, it doesn't discriminate between true and false disciples at times. It just means those who are following Jesus. Because in John 6, we see that some of his disciples turn away and leave. Okay? So what does the word disciple mean? Um, well, uh, the scholar Ron Johnson in his... Uh, in his guidebook to discipleship, which is available at the information booth if you'd like to see it. I printed it out. It's also on our church website. He says this. It can't, I'm quoting my pastor. I love this. It can be easy to fall into the trap of thinking of disciples as super Christians. However, the early church was clear that all believers were called disciples. We affirm that all believers 
are followers of Christ and are to be imitating Christ and growing through discipleship. So what is a disciple? Again, Pastor Ron says, one who has come to Jesus for eternal life, has claimed him as Savior and God, and has embarked upon the life and relationship of following him, he or she is a believer. So the disciples of Jesus are mentioned here for the first time. This is group of followers. The, the word in Greek means learner, follower. Okay, someone who is learning from uh, another, generally considered a rabbi or a teacher. So Jesus now is making it very explicit for the first time in the Gospel of Luke that he is totally okay, okay with, with hanging out with certain people, even if it makes the religious people angry. Now, especially if you've grown up in church, if you've grown up in church, you saw pictures of Pharisees, you heard stories about Pharisees, and the Pharisees are the bad guys, boo, hiss, okay, if this is a melodrama, and I said Pharisees, you'd all go, boo, okay, but the problem is, is that we've kind of grown too accustomed to seeing the Pharisees as the bad guys, and the Pharisees are often, in Jewish culture, the good guys, in fact, as things broke down by party and by theology, the Pharisees were the conservatives, The Pharisees believed the law. The Sadducees, they were the liberals. They didn't even believe anything except for the first five books of the Old Testament. And if they did, they kind of maybe a little uh, hard to tell what they actually believed. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or demons. So the Pharisees are actually a whole lot more like us. The Pharisees are are good religious people. They, They love the family. They love purity. They love following God in a strict way. And yet, as many of you know, first of all, from your own heart, and second of all, from churches that you've been involved with, perhaps, this can go bad, can't it? This can go bad pretty quickly. And it can go bad in seeing these people as sinners who we don't associate with. Jesus turns that on its head, and he hangs out with the unlovable. He loves the unlovable. Last week we saw he touches the untouchable. The Pharisees and their scribes were so concerned about a good thing that they turned their concern about a good thing into a bad thing. They took it too far. And so the way they took it was that they were not going to associate with sinners. They were those people. They were the common folk. They're not committed like me. I'm a super good Jew. I think we all can identify with this because we all like to look at other people and say, well, at least I'm not like that person. I'm doing pretty good. I have never done da-da-da-da-da. Right? Or I used to do da-da-da-da, but don't do that anymore. Well, that's good that you don't do that anymore. But that way of saying that means, wow, you're amazing for not doing that anymore. Can I be like you? Yes, follow me. That is what this turns into. This turns into uh, an arrogance. It turns into that, that kind of twisted, sick, false humility. It turns into a worship of self. This is actually everything that Jesus was against. And so Jesus' words in 31 and 32 are worth looking at again. Jesus is saying, he's identifying himself as a physician. That's the metaphor here. I'm the doctor. The doctor comes not to treat the people that are well. The doctor treats the sick people. Some of you are like, well, what about preventive medicine? That's not the point in this picture. The point in this picture is there are really sick people and the doctor has to prioritize the sick people first, right? They're sick and dying, like the leper that we met. Jesus has to prioritize, right? So he prioritizes those who are sick. Verse 32, he tweaks the metaphor and says he's come to call not the righteous, but sinners. That's who Jesus is looking for. So the Pharisees are criticizing exactly why Jesus came. Like, how dare you do that, Jesus? And he's like, this is why I came. You're criticizing the plan. You don't understand this. Yes, this is exactly why I came. Now, um, it is really good at this point to mention two things. Um, It's really good to notice 
that the, the church, this is a quote from Robert Munger, the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. I'll say that again. The church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. Okay, now, it, so, so here's the deal. It is a good thing if you get say, I'm a sinner. I'm sick. It is a bad thing to say, I'm well. I don't need any help. I'm righteous. I'm doing okay. I've got this covered. That means you're not, you're not ready. You're not qualified. What's good news is that you're a sinner. So let me say to every single person in this room, 100% of you, yes, you're qualified because you're a sinner. Now, the problem becomes in your self-perception. The problem becomes, do you see yourself as a sinner? Or do you see yourself as a sinner, but not like that sinner? I love that, well, I'm not Hitler. (laughs) Wow. Thank you for not being Hitler. We already had one. We don't need another one. Why are you comparing yourself to Hitler? (laughs) That's not helpful, right? So we tend to do that, though. Well, at least I'm not like the the lowest common denominator. At least I'm not bad like that that person. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for, Jesus is looking for, those who understand, who acknowledge their need. And then notice the last phrase. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners, it doesn't stop there, to repentance. So let's notice this, and let's take this into consideration. Repentance is a changing of your mind. It has to do with turning around, turning from Something to turn to something else. So Jesus, listen, Jesus is not merely accepting. Okay? This is what the Pharisees were concerned about, that Jesus was going to go into this this tax collector's house and just kind of be like, hey guys, it's cool to hang out with sinners. Yeah, now you're going to sin because you're hanging out with sinners. No, Jesus went to hang out with the sinners because the sinners that he saw acknowledged they were lost and needy. And so he was going to go there with a message, not merely of saying, you're good, you're cool. So Jesus wasn't saying, it's good to be a sinner and stay there. Jesus was saying, it's good to acknowledge your sin. Now let's do something about that. I have something to do with that. So the the call to repentance is you can't just stay there. Right? Come as you are, yes, but you, you, you have to change. There, there must be change. And not change that you muster up from the inside out, but change that comes from what Jesus is offering. Jesus is here, and now repentance is doable. Now, um, one of the commentators said this about repentance, and this is, a good, this is a good word for people like me, church kids, people that were raised in Christianity, to hear. Repentance does not come easily to those who see themselves as already sufficiently religious. I don't even know what that means. What does that mean to be sufficiently religious? It's a moving target for whatever you want it to mean. Repentance does not come easily. Now listen, he's not saying the Pharisees are already righteous, by the way. He's not giving the Pharisees kind of like the get-out-of-jail-free card. He's using irony to say, you see yourselves as healthy, You see yourselves as righteous. The point is, that's how you see yourself. That's not reality. And so Jesus says, that's where you guys are at. I'm not going to hang out with you. I'll argue with you. I'll criticize you. And we'll see that as the book goes on. But I'm going to go to these people and teach them the gospel. So what's required? What is required is to come to Jesus and to come in repentance. So we don't come to Jesus just as we are, and stay that way. We come to Jesus saying, this is who I am. Thank you for accepting me. Now change me. Make me more like you. It is not coming to Jesus and saying, I'm so glad you affirm me in my sin. I'm just going to wallow in it because you love me, Jesus. It's to come to Jesus and say, thank you for loving a sinner like me. Now help! (laughs) Help me! This is the picture that we need to have in our minds. We need to constantly remember that we are great sinners. In this month of celebrating the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther had this great um, understanding of this, that he called himself simultaneously a sinner and a saint and balanced those two things as well as he could. He was well aware of his sin, and he was now 
well aware of the gospel that rescued him from that sin. And yet he couldn't shake it and he kept sinning. But he was saved by faith in Jesus Christ who was going to offer his righteousness. So, so Luther saw himself as, yes, I'm a sinner, but yes, I am saved by grace. And so we do the same. John Newton, um, best known for writing the hymn, you may have heard of it, Amazing Grace. Um, he was a wicked sinner. He was the captain of, captain of a slave ship. He um, wrote his, his own autobiography about how awful of a person he was and how much he hated people, how disgusting his mind had become. And at the end of his life, God saved him in his 20s and he became a pastor um, and he just wrote some fantastic letters and he mentored William Wilberforce who helped overthrow the slave trade. John Newton said at the end of his life, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. Do you see the, do you see the balance there? He's losing his mind. He knows he's on the way out. And he remembers, man, I'm a, I'm a great sinner. And Jesus is a great savior. That is good news. That's how I want to go out. <laughs> I don't remember much anymore. Who are you? All I know is that I'm wicked and Jesus saved me. If we could go to our graves like that, that would be a, a life well lived. Point number three. Being with Jesus rearranges priorities. Being with Jesus rearranges priorities. This is in verses 33 and 35, and it's not clear if this immediately follows what happened um, before in verses 29 through 32. Uh, But whatever the case is, there's a continual conversation along these lines, and the Pharisees and the scribes are now mounting a frontal attack. Before, in the last few uh, passages, they've kind of been hanging out, like observing Jesus. In fact, remember, Jesus forgives a guy's sin, and they're thinking in their heads. They're not saying it out loud yet. They're thinking in their heads, who does this guy think he is? Right? And then Jesus reads their mind, which should have given them some kind of indication. <laughs> this is not a normal person. He just read my mind. Okay? But now, there's a full frontal attack. The words are coming out. They're not just sitting up here. They're coming out. They're being verbalized. And they said to him, the they is presumably the Pharisees and the scribes, and him is Jesus because Jesus answers. Verse 33, the disciples of John, (laughs) this is really actually kind of brilliant, right? John is Jesus' cousin, right? So now you're going to turn the cousins against each other. They're going to try to use John to get in a wedge here in the argument. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so the disciples of the (coughs) Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. I mean, just by that phrase, don't you want to be Jesus' disciple and not the disciples of the Pharisees? <laughs> I mean, right? Like, yours eat and drink. Yes! <laughs> that in itself is good news. Okay, but, but look, at the, look at the picture here is they're trying to, to turn on Jesus and they're criticizing his actions and his religious piety. Okay, it seems from scripture and from um, lots of documents we have, uh, ancient documents, that pious Jews, like the Pharisees, probably fasted twice a week regularly. Monday, Thursday, fasting day. Okay, probably during daylight hours. It may have been like a 12 to 18, maybe even a 24-hour fast. Um, And it became a regular practice, and it became so regular that they had kind of used it now as a new standard. You are a good Jew if you fast on Mondays and Thursdays. There's only one problem with that. If you today went home and you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, first of all, you get a gold star. That's awesome. Um, But second, you would find nothing about fasting twice a week. Nothing. No thing. Nada. You would find one prescribed fast per year. One per year. On the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, afflict yourselves. Don't eat. To pray to God, to plead for forgiveness. One day. It seems that later on in the Old Testament, there may have been some kind of optional days added where they memorialized the temple being destroyed, and so they fasted in memory of that awful thing and looking forward to when God would restore the kingdom. Um, But what the Pharisees and the scribes have done is just completely muddy things up. Because they've added a standard that is not God's standard. And we do this too. 
We do this too. Some of you um, maybe are old enough to remember that movie theaters were dens of iniquity. You don't ever go to a movie theater if you're a Christian, right? Ever. Not at all. And any drop of alcohol is for wicked, debauched drunkards. And if you saw a can of beer or a glass of wine in somebody else's house, you immediately vacated the premises and put a cr- <laughs> get away. We, 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 we can think of all kinds of things, right? Begin to set up these, these false standards that are not the standards that God has given. Now, they might actually be good things to some extent, but they're not God's things. <laughs> they're not God's standards. And so they've raised the standard of fasting, and now the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, hey, your disciples don't even fast twice a week. See, what Jesus could have easily done is said, yeah, show me in the Torah where that is. No, he didn't. <laughs> okay, he doesn't do that. But he could have just said, show me that where that in the, the Torah. Well, Jesus um, answers, and he uses a metaphor, maybe a mini parable. Verse 34, look at this. Jesus said to them, I love he answers it with a question, right? An accusation that answers the question. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? What's the picture? The picture is, think of the, the, last, the last big wedding you went to with a reception afterwards and a meal. Oh, I'm so happy to be at your wedding, guys. Maybe they ask you, you know, did you enjoy the food or whatever? Oh, no. I'm not eating food. I'm fasting at your wedding. Thank you, but I'm not going to partake in that delicious-looking food. Okay. But you don't, you don't show up at somebody's wedding and say, sorry, I'm not, I'm not eating. I need to maintain my holiness. You, you go to the wedding and you, and you party. You, you feast, okay? The wedding is not the time to fast. Why? Because fasting was generally associated with repentance, okay? With sadness and sorrow and pleading with God for something that wasn't happening. You don't go to a wedding and, and do that because at the wedding, beautiful, good things are happening, Feast with the couple. Feast with the family. By the way, in their time period, I mean, you could get away with this, right, in our day. You'd get away with this, right? In their day, you could not get away with this. Okay, what do you mean you're not going to eat? What? Who do you think you are? This is a wedding party. Some of their wedding parties went on for a week. <laughs> they have a real hard time fasting for a week with all that good food. Okay? Um, the picture that Jesus says is, hey, listen, when the, when the bridegroom is here, the, the, the best man and the groomsmen, they don't skimp. <laughs> okay? They rejoice. They celebrate. They have fun. So Jesus is saying, basically, I'm the bridegroom and I'm here. Because in verse 35, he says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. The picture is, the bridegroom's here. Jesus is here. Things are new. Things are different. While Jesus was there, the disciples did not need to practice fasting to hear from God. They hung out with him. Okay? So they didn't need to go, Oh, Lord, please, we haven't heard from you in years. They said, Hey, Jesus, what are we eating for lunch today? They said, Jesus, that was a rough time back in that town. They said, they talked with Jesus. He was there with them. There was no need to... There was no intercessor. He was right there. Which is why, is why he says someday he's not going to be there, which is the first hint of, uh-oh. What do you mean you're not going to be around? What? We're going to have to fast later? But that, that's not the focus. The focus is of the bridegroom. And so Jesus rearranges their priorities, okay, for that purpose. Now, Jesus might have rearranged your priorities. In fact, if your priorities weren't rearranged by Jesus, I don't think you met him. Because Jesus changes our priorities, right? We cannot live the same life that we lived before we met Jesus. After we've met Jesus, things must change. They must be different. For, as the passage says, we are sinners. Repentance means a change of mind, of direction. Now, notice what Jesus goes on further to say in the last section of the message. Point number four, Jesus came to bring something new. Jesus came to bring something new. 
There is something new, qualitatively new and different about what Jesus brings. And he tells them a parable in verse 36. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. The the picture is that the two can't coexist. They can't mix and still work. So he says, imagine a new shirt, a brand new shirt. Imagine a very old shirt that has a hole and needs a patch. You don't cut the new shirt to patch the old one. You ruin both of them. Because this isn't going to work very well. It's also going to look super weird. Okay, this is not going to work well or work long. And you just ruined a a perfectly good shirt. Why would you do that? The, the, The indication here is, get rid of the old shirt. This is the new one. Retire it. Now, some of you may have, you know, problems retiring old shirts. I remember my mom doing this for my dad. And I'd be like, where's that shirt? And my mom would be like, mm, I threw it away. <laughs> right? Um, why? Because it was old. And it was no good anymore. And it, my mom didn't, by the way, go buy a new shirt and, like, patch up the old one. She secretly, <laughs> sneakily, threw it away. And, hey, it's a new shirt, brand new. You, you, you don't, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. It's not best. And then Jesus switches the metaphor in verse 37 and says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Why? Well, look at this. Um, here's, here's, an in, here's a picture of a recovered wineskin. Not exactly sure if it's as old as Jesus' time, but it's an old wineskin. It won't work well anymore. You can see this hanging on the wall here. Um, it's called a wineskin because it was made from skin to hold wine. Yes. So I looked this up. And I'll read this because it's much smarter than me. Wine skins were usually made from sheepskin or goat skin, and the neck area of the animal became the neck of the container. The body portion was skinned, the hair was removed, and the hide was treated to prevent the skin from changing the taste of the contents. Thank you. Finally, it was sewn together. But over time, the skin of such a container would age and become brittle. Um, Jesus is saying, no one does this. And he goes on to say, if he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. Again, the point is, if you try to do this, both things are ruined. The old skin, what it's got left is going to be destroyed. And all the wine is on the ground where it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be in bellies. Okay? It's not supposed to be on the ground. So you've ruined the wine skin and you've ruined the wine and now you have nothing. So don't do that. What do you need? You need a new wine skin. You need a fresh wineskin, verse 38, to put the new wine into. Jesus is saying, I have new things coming. There's new things, and it needs a new delivery system. It needs a new container. We've got to scrap the old and bring in the new. Now, you could take this way too far, okay, and then just chuck your Old Testament out. That's not what Jesus is doing, as he'll explain later in the gospel. Okay, but what he is saying is he's bringing something new. So, in this, in this new thing that he's doing, he is going to bring new wine, new garments that replace the old. That's what Jesus is doing. He's giving the Pharisees an indication, you guys are clinging to the old. I am bringing the new. Forsake the old and buy into what, I'm, what I've got, the new stuff that I've got. Because if you could try to mix it, the new wine and the old wine, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's going to blow up. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is telling them in parables and metaphors that what he is bringing is better and new. Now, the problem is that verse 39 is super weird and does not appear in Matthew's gospel or Mark's. (laughs) So some people try to get rid of it. Um, I don't think it should be gotten rid of. I think it should be understood ironically because 39 could be seen as to go uh, totally against everything Jesus just said. Look at verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. So you're bringing new, but the old is good. What? I think what's happening here, and, and, and I wrestled with this, and I looked at what various commentators think. I think what's happening is that Jesus is saying, and you guys just want to stick to the old. And you're so content with your old stuff that you're not even going to consider the new and better stuff I have for you. No one after drinking the old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. He's, I think he's criticizing the Pharisees 
for just being the kind of people that say, I'm good, I'm good with what I've got. I'm good with this. I don't want anything new. How many of you can resonate with that? I like my phone the way it's working. I don't want to update to iOS 11. Oh, wow, I got more hands for that. Okay? Now, so, to, okay, so do, you see, do you see how, though, maybe you don't see if, it's, if we're talking about Apple, but the, the, the update is supposed to be new and better, right? It's supposed to work better, less bugs, less things going wrong. Why would you be okay with the old? Because it works better. Okay, but don't think that, okay? But let's pretend the old doesn't work as good, okay? Why would you stick with the old when something new and fresh is right before your eyes? Why, when Jesus comes preaching a gospel of good news, would you cling to your man-made traditions? Because I like it this way! But Jesus has something so much better. He says, friend, that is, that's old and outdated. This is so much better. And that's what Jesus offers to sinners. <laughs> this is the hinge of history. It's turning. And Jesus says, follow me. Follow me to freedom. Follow me to hope. Follow me to forgiveness. Follow me eventually to a new heavens and a new earth. Follow me to a new covenant, a new and living way with the God who made you and loves you so much. And that's the call that we repeat. On the authority of Jesus, not the authority of myself, on the authority of Jesus, I just say, there's a new and living way. Come to Jesus. Leave everything. Follow him, and it's going to be much better. Now, if you read the rest of the book, it does not mean it's going to be always in, you know, unicorns and rainbows and all kinds of happy things, okay? But it's going to be, in the end, much, much better. This is the offer that we have for any here in this room and any in our lives who don't know Jesus. We have something new and better, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Help us to believe this. Help us to know this. Help us to evaluate our own lives and see how this applies. God, I pray that we would see this in the way that we look at our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, that we would not see them as merely wicked sinners that we're not to associate with, but that we would see them as sinners like we once were in need of a Savior that they need the water and we know where to get it. God, help us this week even to see our coworkers, our neighbors, our classmates, our family members, our friends in this light. And Lord, that those that aren't our friends, for whatever reason, that we would begin to see them in a new light and begin to look at them as Jesus looked at Levi and offer a better way. God, help us to really believe when we talk about gospel and we talk about good news when we talk about a better message, a better way, a new way. So Lord, help us practice that this week. Help us not just to sit here and nod our heads, but help us to get, get to work, to do the hard work of loving sinners. So Lord, remind us of our own sin. Remind us of your forgiveness of our sin. And then help us to go and tell that message to others. In Jesus' name, amen.